You're listening to the Auxiliary Gate Podcast, Kentucky's weekly horse racing discussion. And now, here are your hosts, Alan Schneider. Probably the finest Arabians in the land. It was won by Hayab Al-Zaman, who defeated Quicksand. Ah, 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 ah. Brandon Jaggers. In the end, it was uh, Carol Cedeno getting Hayab Al-Zaman home over a pretty game Quicksand, ah, 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 I believe. And uh... and me, CC brought us. Mark my words, we've not seen the last of Quicksand, ah, all right everybody welcome to episode number 107 of the auxiliary gate podcast i'm cc broadus and i'm joined by the svelte alan schneider Felt? I don't think my my pants would say that. They disagree with that. Uh, I need to cut out some, some some sugar in the occasional beer on the weekend or whatever. But if you call me Svelte, buddy, I'll take it. I'll take whatever compliments I can get. <laughs> on my right, joining us once again, the ex girl killer, Brandon Jaggers. <laughs> yeah, I've got a, a month of month break from uh, running the the judgeship for Sarah Clay, so. She's going to take a, a respite. I'm going to be here in Louisville, and I hope to make the track a few more times. Well, let's get into that right now. Uh, I'm I'm going to cast my vote for Sarah. Yeah. If she can lower gas prices. Can, can we get this done? <laughs> Brandon, what do you think? Uh, uh, you know, she's that's out of out of her jurisdiction and county, but we'll we'll talk about uh how she can make a difference on the bench. Nice okay. political answer. Like <laughs> like basketball on the bench or Oh, I get it. I see. I see where you went. I, I see. Know. I see. I'm not very bright like I used. <laughs> All right, guys, let's get into the news of the day. Breaking news from the world of horse breeding. This is from the bloodhorse.com by Dick Downey. You're not going to believe this. A New York bred stakes winner that sold for $150,000 at Keeneland as a broodmare prospect back at the January sale is actually a male, according um, to a lawsuit pending in the Fayette Circuit Court in Lexington. And uh, this stakes winner is named Kep True. She went through the January Horses of All Ages sale. And actually, this is in January of 2021. My, my, my bad. But uh, I didn't realize that when I read through it the first time. But she was purchased as a five-year-old broodmare prospect by Michelle and Albert Crawford's Crawford Farms near Lexington. And over the course of the previous 27 months, Kept True compiled a record of five wins, two seconds, and two-thirds from 14 starts in earnings of $323,659, which she ran against females at Aqueduct, Belmont, and Saratoga. So here we go. This is uh, we had just talked about this weeks earlier. Uh, a, a horse named Cupacoy's Joy was, ran in the Derby, and the owner inquired about uh, having a sex change for the horse, or actually adding, uh, complimenting the horse with a set of uh, nudicles. But uh, this this comes full circle, guys. Uh, who's who's at fault here, or, or is anybody at fault? Or well, do you know the story enough to know? I don't know the story enough to know, so obviously I have questions. It seems very timely as we've had some similar things in the world of, you know, 
human sports. So now it's uh, filtered down to equine sports. Uh, so my question is, it's actually a male. So bear with me on this. Is anything hanging down there from the horse? I mean, uh, well, <laughs> I- I'm confused. The make a long story short. The uh, the Crawford's vet reported, quote, obvious abnormalities in the horse's reproductive organs. But the horse gave an outward appearance that it is a female. So, you know, okay. if you look at the horse, apparently, the, it, it, you know, he, he fools you. But so going back, you know, this horse beat a lot of female runners in New York. And then it seems like the owner pushed uh, – you know, kind of, kind of rolled the dice to enter this horse in the sale. They got one hundred fifty thousand dollars for him or her. And the Keeneland, when they uh, they they do a vet exam, and the vet said that this horse is suitable for mating. They announce that at the sale uh, right before every every broodmare that comes through, and they they announce that. So you know this horse is is good to be bred. So the owner buys it, brings the horse home. Obviously, the horse can't breed. And he wants his money back. He's contacted Keeneland. He's contacted original owners. Everybody says, we're not going to give you anything. Who's at fault? Uh, number one, um, I think he's entitled to, to, I would say he's entitled to, uh, whatever he wants to get his money back. Number one. Number two, I'm still confused. Uh, I guess we're trying to be politically correct and not, but you know, whatever. I'm just going to go and ask. Where are his penis and his balls at? Where are they at? <laughs> I don't you know, think they, they exist. I don't. I don't think that, they exist. Okay. Uh, Gosh. Know, I, I mean, I had biology class when I was a young, a young man, and I know kind of how that stuff works. Now, not to sound too like a biologist or whatever, but well, undescended. when I have, when I have <laughs> biology questions, I turn to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Okay, so obviously it's it's a cloudy thing. I have to think that he's entitled. He was he was sold a faulty. Bill of Goods, right? It sounds like they kind of gave him the rod, uh, so to speak. Uh, pardon the pun. So I think he's entitled to compensation. Uh, but again, I'm no legal expert, particularly in manners quite like this. Brandon? I would assume all the liability falls on the consigner and, okay. and Keeneland. They've got to reimburse and uh, for any and all expenses plus the purchase price. It needs to be a full refund. And this is this this is like a Mari Povich show. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, throw the gavel down. I agree with you. Sold. I'm uh, the verdict is in. I think. I mean, Keeneland has to reimburse the owner. That that you know they're responsible. I mean that that people trust in them when they you know yes. when a vet make this decision that the horse is suitable for breeding. That's a you know you you want your your auctioneer or your auction house to be trustworthy in these situations i would think that's uh i don't know i, I would think they would volunteer to to, to pay this off but I, you know like i said there's probably more red tape to it than that i suppose i, think I need we to phone, read the article <laughs> yeah we phone a will nesker on the next uh pod to get can we get him clarification huh well, can we get I, will I, on like right possibly. now possibly well, let me let me see. I'll send I thought he text. was on call. We he got another will be. coming. I think okay. I think the check bounced. But we'll oh, work it out. Yeah. We'll work it I out. Forgot to make that deposit. <laughs> that is an amazing story. I mean, it just it's too hard to wrap your head around, honestly, for me. I mean, it seems like cut and dry. But then again, 
Maybe I don't know everything that I thought I knew. Let's put it that way. I don't know. Well, Same here. Learning new things every day. So let's uh, let's switch gears. Going down the phasic tipton site right now, there was a big, here it is right here, hip number 385 at the phasic tipton Midlantic sale for two-year-olds at Timonium. Mm-hmm. Hip number 385, a son of Bernardini out of G-Note, was purchased for $3.55 million. And guess where he's going? Uh, Let me think. Uh, your backyard. Exactly. Nope. This is exactly wrong. He's going to the stable of Bob Baffert when he returns to training. Oh. <laughs> Purchased by Amir Zidane, uh, Gary Young, an agent. Amir Zidane, of course, owned Medina Spirit, and he also owned Taba. I can almost guarantee if Gary Young picked this horse out, he is a looker. The funny thing is he's a New York bred, probably going to California, though. But uh, Bernardini out of, out of G-Note, uh, keep an eye on that pedigree. He worked 9.4 at the two-year-old sale, and that is booking on that bull ring track. 20 hips or so later, number 406, son of Creative Cause out of Hold Her Tight by Proud Citizen, was purchased mm-hmm. by Brilliant Racing, our friends, headed by Joe Christofek and Brandon Stoppel, Natalie Gills, et al. Creative Cause, a 10.3 workout led to a purchase by Brilliant Racing. The horse is going to our friend Michelle Lovell. Well, that's all we care about. We're happy about that. Anytime Michelle gets a horse, we're all for it. Those guys work tirelessly to come up with this stuff. I mean, they really do. We're not just boasting because they're friends of ours. I mean, they they work tirelessly for this stuff. So they're excited. We're excited. I know Mr. Broadus has a slightly bigger piece than uh, Brandon and I do, but that's okay. Uh, everybody wins with this. So if anybody can turn this horse to a good one, I'm sure it's Michelle as well. We'll, we'll talk more about this purchase a little bit later, but yeah, uh, we, we got, we got, there may be something coming in the future brilliant wise, but right now we've got a, a big time guest, uh, one that we're very pleased to have and, uh, I think he's getting ready to join us on the line right now. Hey, thanks, CC. Tonight I'm honored to introduce uh, our guest tonight, a Louisville native who grew up pursuing another American pastime sport, the sport of football. Standing at over six foot five and nearly 300 pounds in his playing days, many knew early on as a kid he was not going to be a jockey. <laughs> this young man went to Louisville's oldest Catholic high school, St. Xavier, and graduated, went on to play football at the universe, Vanderbilt University. After a stellar university career, he entered the 1986 NFL draft. He was a first-round pick and picked as number 20 and went on to the Buffalo Bills as their new offensive tackle. He left Buffalo in 1992, started with the Colts in 93, and then on to Pittsburgh Steelers in 96, and soon after retiring in 1998. Yes, he played in those Buffalo Bills Super Bowls. Hmm. He is a three-time Pro Pro Bowler who started and played in 191 NFL games. Tonight, the Auxiliary Gate is honored and so humbled to have its first NFL pick of any kind or any first round draft pick of any kind mr will wolford will how are you never better glad to be here awesome awesome well you know obviously your nfl days are were awesome times of years uh, i guess as you growing up um what was kind of your fondest memories 
in some of those games and things that, you know, at any age, what was some of the things that you took away that I guess are always stick with you uh, throughout your years to today? Uh, I was very fortunate in Buffalo, Indianapolis, and Pittsburgh to play with some really good teams. Uh, in, in Buffalo, playing with, I think, four or five future Hall of Famers, um, a couple games that just stand out. The greatest comeback in NFL history when we're losing 28-3 to at halftime. Mm-hmm. Kelly's not playing. Frank Reich's the quarterback. We open up the second half. The second play of the second half, we throw a pick six. So now we're down 35-3. But yet we're at home and we're playing uh, Houston, who's running, who's running the run and shoot offense, which takes no time off the clock, and uh, we were able to pull off a, a huge upset. Uh, an, another game in Buffalo, the AFC Championship game in 1990, the first uh, Super Bowl run. Yep. We're at home against the Raiders, and we're home underdogs, and we beat them 51 to three. Which, you know, those, those are. Two games, they're, they're not going to be duplicated. You're not going to have another 51-3 to three in the AFC Championship game, and that NFL greatest comeback game is probably going to hold up forever. Yeah, and that's before all the rules changes. And, I mean, now they, they protect the quarterback so much more. I mean, they want to see high-powered offenses, it seems like. So, yeah, 51-3 to three back then it was a big, big deal. No doubt. And, boy, did they protect they, – they did not protect the quarterbacks back then. No. Them boys took some shots. Well, we know you, that you uh, coached uh, at St. Xavier, coached the football team for many years. Uh, but thereafter, you know, what do you do now? I've been working at Morgan Stanley for uh, over 13 years. And one job that I got into after my NFL career was uh, doing radio. I started doing radio for the Colts. I did pregame, postgame for five years. And then I did um, travel with the team doing doing color. And it was really nice because it was during Peyton Manning's career, and it was a lot of fun to travel because you knew they were going to win most of the time. Uh, and Peyton is, uh, and all those guys, are they're, they're great people to hang out with. Well, I gave that, at the same time I started working for Morgan Stanley, but I gave up the uh, the radio gig to coach at St. X. And then I did that for five years, and then, uh, oh, a number of different reasons I stepped down, but mainly my doctors let me know you know, with, with what's going on with you and medicines you take, you may not want to keep coaching. So so I, so I stepped down, and, uh, you know, it was a good decision for me. It was a good decision for St. X. Yeah. Well, so I bet some of us didn't know that. I did not know that. So, mm-hmm. uh, But I tell you, since we're a horse racing podcast and we like to focus on Louisville and Kentucky natives, people that are on the backside or the front side of the track, so what inspired you to get into horse racing? At a young age, my dad uh, would take me to the track and, and let me bet. And I'm talking about grade school. And then in the high school, I started going to the Derby and started getting into betting. And he made me read, you know, Ansley's books on handicap. And uh, even before Andy Byer came out with his Byer on Speed book, uh, was it John Ansley or whatever his name was? He had all the books. And I started studying them and reading them and learned how to read the racing form and and just enjoyed it. Um, enjoyed picking winners and whatnot. And I and back then, I mean, it's St. X. Even freshman, junior, freshman, sophomore, junior year, we I, I wasn't the only kid who did that. Um, nowadays, it's I think it's probably rare. But when I was growing up, we a lot of us went. You know, we mm-hmm. go out to the track with with ten, twelve dollars and, and try to turn in the fifty. 
Um, so I really well, just started off as, as, as a gambler for sure. Well, uh, I guess, so I sent you a, a text of a, a video of a race that, you know, luckily our, our archivist CC brought us <laughs> found on YouTube. Right. And, and it was a very unbelievable, great race. Uh, CC, do you want to intro that race? What I'm talking about? Well, yeah, you're speaking of none other than the uh, 2003 Woodford Reserve Turf Classic. That uh, obviously most people in racing know that's the race before the Kentucky Derby. It's Grade One. Has clear sailing, and he's up to tackle him from the outside. Raquette is charging at the hedge. Then perfect drift with anticipation coming on too late. It's Honor and War and David Flores opening up a length and a half. Patrol on the inside second. Then Raquette. Honor and War is clear. Honor and War at 24 to one upsets the Woodford Reserve Turf Classic by a Oh, it was uh, probably the greatest day of my life. Uh, and, really? and everybody's everybody's supposed to say it's the birth of their children. No, <laughs> it was uh, crazy in my life. Uh, you know, one thing football afforded me to do is buy racehorses, and I started off with, um, you know, five, six, and ten thousand dollar horses. And then when I signed as a free agent with the Colts in '93, I think my first first phone call was to Paul McGee, and I said, "All right, we're going to the sale." And at that time, I loved uh, Gopher Wand, and Gopher Wand was a deputy minister. And I'm like, I want a deputy minister Philly. I want her to be dark bay or brown. And Paul Paul picked <laughs> as a winner, and uh, graceful minister ended up winning a few stake races. So my ownership career was off and running. Honor and War was just uh, almost a fluke because up to that point, I had only bought in Phillies because I wanted residual value. If I'm going to spend a lot of money on a horse, I want to get some breeding and then you know, I named one after my third daughter, Wild About Bridget, that never even raced, but yet I was able to sell her for a profit. Well, Honor War, you know, he was the first colt I'd ever bought. And uh, I was very lucky to get him. I was actually at the Kentucky uh, Cup Day at uh, up at Turfway. And he was selling that day, and luckily he, I was losing betting. So I turned to the wife and, and John Deacon Mills and said, let's get to the sale. There's a horse selling that. Ron Ellis turned me on to about a week ago and uh, said, you know, he would like him, but he's going to leave town. He won't be around. And Paul had already picked me out a couple horses at that point. So we literally took off, drove really fast to Keeneland. And I kid you not, I walk in the sales ring. I drive in front of the sales ring and I leave the car for John. I go in the sales ring and sit down and they go sold. And it was the hip right before Honor and War came into the ring. So. Like, so we catch him. So by the time Jude and John come in, I'm already at the bar. And I'm like, yeah, we got the horse. Uh, and he <laughs> just, he turned out to be just a, a needle in a haystack. I mean, how many people own a grade one stakes horse? It was, uh, it was an incredible day, but just an incredible career for that horse. He was, uh, no, he was, he was an all time favorite and then some. So, so fast forward after that race. Did you invest more into horse racing, or what happened after that? Because I tell you what, I think everybody on this podcast would have doubled down. <laughs> now, we really didn't, because my NFL career was over, so so the big faucet was cut off. I was probably four years retired at that time. And we had just had, besides him, we had a horse named Colonial Glitter, who won the Bourbonette Stakes by 10, uh, all in that same group that we brought that we bought. Um and we kind of took some, some time off for a few years thinking, all right, you know, well, we let Honor Ward's career play out too. Cause he ran 
He ran mm-hmm. for three more years. Um, and when we did go back to the sale, we didn't have the same kind of luck. We bought three of them, and none of them won. We were able to get rid of them and made in claiming. Actually, right. both, two of them in made in 50s, one in made in a quarter. But we didn't have the same kind of luck at all. And that's really been the last time I've, I've gone back to the yearling sale. Um, I've messed around with some claiming horses, and especially nowadays because purses are outrageously good, um, and everybody's claiming. But uh, to, to, to buy one and, and spend that kind of money and wait the year and a half plus to see if they can run it all, um, now the, the last time I went to sale, I had such a bad taste on my mouth, uh, I haven't been back. Yeah, I would say in the last couple of years, the prices for horses have just gone through the roof, and it just – it makes it even harder for somebody wanting to start out uh, to really get in the game. But, you know, moving on, and we hope that uh, you still are out there actively claiming. I think there's probably – the eligible claims are probably going to have 10 to 15 shakes at them at a time. So, True. But uh, so moving on, who, who's your favorite jockey? Do you have a favorite jockey right now? Well, up until the Preakness, I would have said Joel Rosario, but I'm still scratching <laughs> about that ride. I, I knew go, I knew he didn't fit the horse. Or, I mean, Joel does not want to go to league. Joel likes to rate, you know, judge the pace, make the big move and whatnot. I mean, he's just not an aggressive gate jock. And, yeah. uh, you know, but I, but I still think he's the best. And usually the jockey I like the best is whoever the uh, jockey agent, Ron Anderson, whoever he's, he's repping. That yeah. guy's probably the best one going right now from way back with, you know, Jerry Bailey, Gary Stevens, uh, P. Val. I mean, he's had, he's, uh, he's the best handicapper out there and he usually gets his guys on the best horses. Yeah. Well, I'm going to turn it over to, uh, CC or Alan. Do you guys have any questions for Will? Take yeah. it away, CC. Uh, well, I want to go back and talk about honor and war some more. Sure. Uh, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure you, uh, you'd love to talk. Talk about that horse. Uh, that day he won the 2003 Woodford Reserve. He uh, he faced some pretty nice horses that day. A perfect drift was in the in the race. Uh, yep. I think he was the runner up in the or maybe the uh, third place finisher in the Derby the prior year. And I know with anticipation, it was a Grade One winner was in that spot. I think he went off favored uh, going into the race. So it, you guys were long shots out 24 to one, as I recall. Did, did you? Did you think you had a shot? Uh, I really did, because um, going a couple years earlier than that, I was turned on to the rags and sheet numbers, and uh, especially in turf racing, they're, they're, they're gold. And he had the best number going into that race. He earned it in Keeneland. Um, he beat a horse, Irish Warrior, uh, just a money allowance race at Keeneland before, before the Woodford. Now, did I think, you know, I think he was a lock and telling everybody to bet him? No. But I mean, he ran too, so I knew going in, um, he 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 could be right there. And then the track was perfect for him because it was a pretty firm turf, and he was a horse that kind of needed a firm turf. It was, you know, was, the field strung out forever, and he was just sitting in a golden spot behind it. But I actually took a lot of money to bet on him, and it was easily the the most money I've won uh, betting horses. Uh, and I also like funny side the next race. So I mean, I literally hit a pick four and I spent I spent eight dollars. Then I hit a pick four, spending thirty dollars. Then I hit a pick four, spent one hundred twenty. So I mean, it, when you're singling funny side and honor war, the only other thing you needed was two Jerry Baileys that both <laughs> paid nine bucks for that pick four. So 
it was a, it was just a really good betting day all the way around. How many times did you have it? Uh, a lot, not enough. <laughs> enough. I, did, I did back off a little bit. I mean, I took money in my right back pocket just to bet in the win, but I was landing the pick three and the pick four, and and a, and a live and a double and everything else. So I did back off a little bit, and I did bet in the win in place. But no, nah, it was a good day. I, I didn't win as much money. The purse was four hundred grand. Um, I didn't win as much money as the purse, but it was <laughs> it was awesome. I mean, my my brother-in-law Bob Kern married my sister Lisa O'Kern's corner man. I mean, he paid cash for a, for a car on Monday. I mean, and he bet forty dollars. I mean, something he had, he had the exact. Oh, yeah, wow. it was just one of those kind of days where you know I was very thankful to the people who got on board, but uh, I certainly understood that they didn't. So what do you do for an encore right after you 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 win the wood for reserve? I mean, you get the 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 world's greatest race like an hour later. I mean, do you, you just, can you can you enjoy the derby or, or is it just you know you're you're in dreamland? Uh, I didn't really care too much for the derby at that point. <laughs> really, um, the only thing I bet in the derby, and unfortunately I lost it by a head. I bet a very heavy, um, funny side, and that's what I'm talking about. Exactly, oh. which was trained by Ron Ellis. Yeah, and, and as I'm talking about, I was flying at the end and got beat probably a, a head and a half for for second, and that exact that was going to pay, it was going to pay a whole lot. But other than that, I didn't bet it. Now Jude did. Jude bet funny side heavy to win, and then wanted to give the ticket to our our waitress as a tip for the day. And I said, hold on, I love this waitress, <laughs> but that's that's a little heavy on the tip department. Uh, but immediately after that race, when you win that a race like that because it was sponsored by Woodford. We went up to the, the president's suite, and I had my first drink of Woodford Reserve bourbon ever at that point. And I'm having it. It's me, the wife, uh, track president, uh, the love gov, um, what was the governor, Pat, I think, at that time, uh, and, and Bo Derek. And Bo, oh, Derek. Bo Derek is mid-50s, and she's just gorgeous. She truly was easily the most beautiful person I think I've ever seen. She was perfect. All the way around, and she was very nice, and even the wife is like, "Good Lord, she's she is perfection." So that was uh, that was a really good bourbon for the first one, especially for Woodford. And well, I've been supporting her product ever since. So. <laughs> you know, my memory's faded quite a bit over the years, but I, I I remember that race, but I I did not remember the Honor and Moore had a really great career. I'm just looking at his past performances right now. He's he he. Placed in a lot of good stakes races, always kept good company. Around the end of 2006, I think you guys sold a piece of him to uh, some Australian interests, and uh, with yes. the intention of running in the Cox Plate, which is a, a big race in Australia, a big Grade One race. Uh, talk about uh, that, and, and did you ever get a chance to, to watch him run in person down under? No, I did not. Unfortunately, um, the year. The year after he, uh, well, no, the year he won the Woodford, that year's Breeders' Cup, we had him, we were going to sell him after the Breeders' Cup. Um, we just, with his breeding, he was a Lord of War of a diocese mare. And, I mean, I thought his breeding was great, but just no one wanted him in our country. No one wanted to breed to him. No one really had him valued what I thought he was going to be. So I'm like, well, all right, we're going to run in the Breeders' Cup. Hopefully he runs well. We're going to sell him while he's really hot. And he wrenched an ankle a couple weeks before the Breeders' Cup, which really sucks because Irish Warrior ran third in that, in that Breeders' Cup. A couple of horses that he had already beaten 
I don't think he would have won because what six perfections or whatever the Philly from Europe won, but everyone else he had beaten. So we didn't get him sold at that point. And then from then on, I was like, all right, I want to, I want to give this horse a career after, after racing. And, and, uh, some Australian interests gave us that opportunity. And, uh, so yeah, we cut the deal with him there and he shipped him down under and he ended up winning, uh, the Villiers stakes and beat their, their champion takeover target. And, uh, you ever pull that up on YouTube? That's a pretty interesting call because it was a pretty, it was a big upset. Wow. So talk about your relationship with uh, Paul McGee. I know he, he's a, a long time trainer in these parts, a really, really, really good horseman. Uh, anything to share about uh, Mr. McGee? Oh, I mean, I grew up with the McGees. Uh, Paul and I were not in the same class, but uh, Paul married Angie Lehman, who I was in grade school with the same class. And you know, I knew Marty. You know, Marty was a sports reporter at that time and just knew the whole family and knew when I got into horse racing that I wanted to use Paul. I knew I could trust him. And uh, I knew we would never embarrass anybody. He's, you know, there's a lot of trainers that are, that are hay, oats, and water. They are milk drinkers. And, and, uh, you know, winning was never uh, that important to me to, to use some of the guys who really pushed the envelope and done some. So Paul has just always been a true, honest horseman. Uh, he wanted to be a jockey. He got too big. He actually graduated with a chemistry degree out of Bellarmine, but he didn't want to go into his dad's business because he loved horses. And uh, he's been very successful and into it the, the whole time. So... I've known Paul for a long, long time. We've had a lot of success together, and he's he's a good friend. So I'm sure you you uh, keep an eye on the on the racing biz, and you, you probably bet a lot of races. Uh, what you said you use the Ragazin sheets. Uh, what else do you use to handicap horse races? Um, just the form. I usually try to you know I'll read the form first and and kind of do my own little handicap, and I'll, I like to figure out the. You know, the fractions between the half mile pole and three quarters pole or three quarters to, uh, to the mile and, and see if they're doing it in 25 and change or 25 or how fast they really do it. But I think especially in turf racing, the ragazins are so key because they, they take into account, you know, lost ground on a turn or being in the fourth path the whole time or, or whatever it may be. But I still think you have to handicap a, a little bit. And, you know, if, there, if there's not much pace, then, then you need to look for somebody who's going to be up up front. If there is a lot of pace, then you know you got to go middle to to, to back. Um, but there's, uh, I think it starts, it begins and ends with the form. You know, if I just have the form, I'm fine. I usually only get the ragazins for big days, big race days, and even then, I only really trust them on the turf. And and boy, you can trust them on the turf. Is there any certain wagers you concentrate on? Pick fours, pick fives, or do you let uh, the races uh, you you follow follow where the races lead you? Yeah, I should do more gimmicks, but I have found out that if I don't do them, I would have hit them all. And if I <laughs> hit them, I don't hit any of them. So I, I, I'm really a win better and a, and a daily double guy. Um, if I do get their money, then I will spread out and I'll spread vertically and horizontally. But, um, you know, I, I kind of clock what I bet. I don't overbet. I mean, if I take a certain amount of money to the track and I lose it, I'm done. I've never borrowed at the track. I've never crushed the ATM. You know, I just, I'm a pretty disciplined, uh, better when it comes to that. And, and really that's what my dad taught me many, many years ago. That's the opposite of me. They've got a statue of me <laughs> at the, uh, 
on the third or the second floor ATM there, <laughs> right behind section 319. I, I, that, me and that ATM are on a first name basis. Uh, not a good Alan, take it away. Uh, yeah, uh, Will, I, I've got, you know, I want to talk horse racing a little bit, but I've got a former NFL player here who's, who's got quite a bit of success. So I'll hit you with this one question. I'm going to, I got to ask some football questions. If that's okay. Sure. Uh, knowing that you, I've done a lot of radio in the past. I know you've hosted some shows, right? You, you were the, the announcer for the Colts. Um, so, and all that stuff is within sports and football. Did you ever consider maybe expanding into horse racing? Maybe, you know, maybe getting a TV or radio uh, via the horse racing portion of athletics? Never really the TV part of it, but, uh, I, I was doing radio with Bob Alvano for a long time. Right. Yeah. I remember that. And when the Great Recession hit and we showed up for work one day and our, our sports station turned into automated country rock and they fired everyone. Um, and at that time, all we, all we needed was airtime to, to sell. Uh, we didn't work for the radio stations. We had a really nice gig going. Well, when that went away, I mean, I need to, I need to find a, a day job. And, and it came down to, I really thought about training horses. I was either going to train really? them. What, what do I know? What have I gotten pretty good at? Cause at that point, I had spent my thousand hours plus at horse sales. I had spent my thousand hours plus in the business and knew it fairly well and I really enjoyed it. Um, but then I'm like, God, my, my minor in college was, was, was business and I've always enjoyed the stock market as well. And, um, so it came down to those two. And, uh, you know, I chose going, uh, going to Morgan Stanley with a, with a friend from high school instead of going into training with, Paul McGee, another friend from high school. Well, obviously you're a natural, and you, you, it's obvious you know the sports that so you would be. You, you would be pretty good at that if that if uh, your path leads you that way. That that's fairly obvious just from listening to you. Well, I've always had a face for radio too, so I, I did. <laughs> you know, it's a it's big difference between doing a radio show and then someone putting a live camera on you. And, and mean, and doing a show that way. That's a big difference. And I never, I could do it. I could pull it off a little bit, but I never enjoyed doing TV at all. And radio his, and what we're doing right now, I can talk for days and this is fun and it's easy. Yeah. Hence our audio podcast. We kind of feel the same way too, right? It just makes it, and not, it makes people feel more comfortable, right? It's a bit easier and stuff. It's more of a casual conversation. It's a uh, gift to be able to pull that off with the TV, you know, on, on a live screen. I agree. So let's get to football a little bit, okay? You mentioned a moment ago the uh, the miracle of the game. We got to touch more on the, the Frank Wright game. That again, I'm 52 years old, so I remember it well. You were down 35 to three, the Oilers. I, I want to say that was Warren Moon back. Was that Warren Moon played for the Oilers yes, then? Yes, it was. Now in the locker room, you're down 28 to three at the halftime, and of course you don't talk about the pick. It's 35 three, and this is for a trip to the Super Bowl, as I recall, right? If I'm not mistaken. Uh, actually, that was that was the first playoff game. Okay. It was the first wild card game, and it was the, the third run at the Super Bowl, so the game didn't sell out. People were kind of already spoiled from the previous two Super Bowl runs. Um, no, the game was not a sellout, which is interesting because yeah. by the second half when they left the gates open, there was 90,000 people at the game, uh, yeah. 10 to 15 over capacity. It was unbelievable. So in the locker room, you're down 23. I mean, what's the mood like when you're down like that in the locker room? Are you still believing? Are guys getting down? I mean, what what happens to something like that? Uh, guys weren't down, but I mean, it was just kind of a joke. It's like, well, we'll keep playing. We're dressed. And at yeah. this point, I mean, we had been to the previous, you know, we, 
we had made nice runs. We had been to the Super Bowl. And, we're, and you know, part of the feeling was, if, if we're not going to win the Super Bowl, let's lose now. Because, uh, you know, we've already been to the Super Bowl and lost. So it was, uh, guys were not down at all. Um, we sure as hell weren't very happy. <laughs> we just, we just figured, you know what? We're at home. Let's keep playing. Uh, if Houston runs any other kind of offense in that You're second, right. and takes mm-hmm. any time off the clock at all, um, I'm sure they put us away because they were incredibly talented. They had more pro bowlers than we did. But uh, they left us in the game, and it snowballed against them. Um, yeah, I, uh, I remember that game well. But you're also, you see, and it, I'm fascinated, too, because you made your living as a lineman, right? That's the bare-bones, uh, lunch-pail position, right, that gets overlooked so much in, uh, in, just in all of athletics. I mean, it's, it's dirty stuff, right? Who are some of the nastiest guys that you went up against? Sometimes you, you go up against a guy and you're like, oh crap, it's him. Uh, well, any guys? I was baptized by fire early on. My first game ever was against the Jets and it was against Joe Klecko, who oh, was Christ. the most feared man in the NFL at that time. Bar none. No one else was close. Um, I had, I had four holding penalties against him and, and the center, Ken Hall, had three. But Jesus. he was jumping off sides so much we would just tackle him and they would call it offsetting penalties. Uh, and I don't know. You talk about a tough game. That guy was, he was a beast. I've never seen a guy quick and strong and smart. And we talked very early about quarterbacks getting drilled. We had first down on the one going in. And Joe Klecko jumps off sides and hits Jim Kelly with a forearm right in the face and just levels him. I mean, helmets off, blood, and everything else. And they called. And now, and Joe Klecko used to cuss out the refs like I've never seen. And the referees would just say, yes, sir, Mr. Klecko. They were scared to death of him. So he would MF him this, that, and watch that. And yes, sir, Mr. Klecko. Yes, sir, Mr. Klecko. It was wild. It was North Dallas 40, if you've ever seen that. Yeah, movie. yeah. It, it really was like that my, my first first year. Well, the referees and Joe Klecko have been intimidating them so much, they called Jim Kelly for drawing him offside. So now we got what? first and six. There's no personal foul for drilling him in the face and, and, ble- and just knocking him freaking out. Uh, and, and the penalty goes against us, and we end up kicking a field goal, and that was the difference in the game. Really? Oh, yeah, we end up losing by three. You know, we, we get a touchdown, and we end up winning the game in that one. But uh, Klecko was a beast. And I'll admit it, I was scared to death of him. Now, the second time I played him, luckily he had had a knee injury, and, uh, you know, he wasn't as difficult to block. But uh, there was no blocking that man. As good as Gastineau was, he never could draw a double team because Klecko was always double teamed. Yeah. Gastineau was probably the least respected guy in the league that everybody heard about. And Joe Klecko was a very quiet guy, never spoke to the media was just a true badass. Him and Randy White, another beast. Uh, For Dallas. No, yeah. I mean, Randy was a man's man. Uh, Reggie White was as good as they make him. I mean, he was 6'5", 300 pounds, uh, uh, just uh, low body fat, a man child. Uh, luckily, he played on the other side most of the time. I only had to play against him in the Pro Bowl. But that sucked because he was the only guy in the Pro Bowl who tried. Yeah, I figured that was a cave. <laughs> you got you had Bruce Smith on the other side of the ball for the Bills, so you didn't have to face him because he's on your team, right? Wasn't Bruce Smith? I did. There? I did. I was, it was fortunately I had seven years of going against Bruce in practice, and 
and Bruce helped me, you know, become the best player I could possibly be. Because Bruce didn't like to practice except for blitz drill and pass rush. And oh. blitz drill, he knew he wouldn't get double teamed. So we used to, um, we used to go at it pretty hard. Uh, and, and Bruce, no doubt. I mean, he's, he was a first ballot Hall of Famer too. He's, he's certainly in that category with all the people I just mentioned. And, he, and really with his stat numbers and all the sacks that he had him, I think he's rated number one. Yeah. And then you play in Buffalo, right? I mean, I know you played in Indianapolis, you played Pittsburgh, but that there's something about playing in Buffalo. Those fans are loyal as all get out in that cold weather. I mean, what was it like playing up there in December, January? And, you know, you've got 90,000. I mean, they're used to it, right? Was it was it tough? I mean, you guys are probably wearing, you know, just uh, so you don't get held, you're probably wearing short sleeves and stuff. I mean, did you look forward to playing like that, or is it just part of the job? Oh, no, we, we loved it. When, when you're winning, you can live anywhere. And when you're losing, San Diego's terrible. Yeah. I know. Buffalo, we, we love the bad weather. We, the last five years I was there, we did not lose a home game that mattered. So, um, we, we prayed for bad weather knowing that the team coming in, uh, would just hate it. And, uh, yeah, we never, I, I would, if it was really, really cold, I wore a second t-shirt. I never put on <laughs> sleeves. Um, Never went to the heated bench. You go to the heated bench, you don't want to play anymore. It's like taking oxygen down in Miami. I made that mistake once. Down in Miami, I felt like I was being cooked inside out, so I go and I start taking oxygen. Then they want me to play again. I'm like, no, I don't want to leave the bench. I'm going to stay here and keep sucking this oxygen in. It's terrible when you make that mistake. So we would give them really nice heated benches and let them all camp out on it and, uh, and just beat them down and send them home. Sure sounds like so. What about you know? We all hear like you know in the trenches there, and you guys are ten guys laying on the ground. You're all three hundred pounds and shit, and uh, that there's getting poked in the eye or getting popped in the nuts. I mean, is there dirty stuff going on underneath there that we don't see? Uh, there certainly was when I played, but nowadays there's so many cameras, and it's just a, it's a different game now. I don't think you hardly see that at all. But I mean, I did take a guy's knee out once because he did try to rack me in and. and uh, and uh, and the pile up. Um, yeah. I did catch another guy with an ice uppercut once, and because he did try to rake my eyes. Uh, God bless. Which, you know, if the, if the game was, uh, if the game would have been on the line, I mean, if it would have been a tight game or a playoff game, and you're just doing anything you can to get a guy to take a cheap shot at you and hopefully get a penalty against them, it'd have been one thing. But it was a complete total blowout, and so when he did it. I just couldn't let it go. And what he didn't know is that I had Kevlar in my gloves. It was my last year playing. So I held on to him, pulled him in close, and hit him with a perfect uppercut and knocked him completely out. And the beautiful <laughs> thing was the penalties all flew, and I, I went to the sideline. I figured it was my last year with the Steelers. I figured, all right, I'm out of here. Yeah. I didn't even get a penalty. They called the penalty on him for hands to the face. So. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and playing up there in Buffalo, I mean, uh, so you still like to go on the races and stuff. So I'm guessing maybe you got over to Fort Erie or Woodbine maybe, or maybe you went over to Saratoga. What, when you Did you get to the track up that way, Finger Lakes? Off the top no, of I, I went to the OTBs back then. They were a big okay. deal, OTBs. I, I went to uh, Fort Erie just a couple times because going over to Fort Erie is like us going over to Indiana. It's not a big yeah. deal. I've been there. It's, it's right inside the border, right? I mean, it's like yeah. neighboring Buffalo. It's really nice. It, it, yeah, it is. I love it. It's funny into it, and they, they get bigger really nice up there. I really enjoyed it. Did you ever get to Woodbine? I did not, no. And uh, and never really started going to Saratoga until my career was over. You know, I was always playing, so never had that opportunity. 
Well, cool. Yeah, it's a it's a nice area up there, and uh, I've never been to a game uh, at Buffalo, but man, it looks like it'd be just a blast. Those guys, they are loyal as all get out up there, just like Pittsburgh, right? In the same way, at Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh fans are very loyal, but when you're the visiting team, they're they're pretty rough on you. Uh, nowadays, Buffalo fans, really, the whole Bills mafia started when they weren't very good, and I think they started jumping out of trees and breaking tables in half because they thought it would bring them some good luck. Uh, but now that the team is really good, it's I can't think of a better atmosphere and a better event than taking in a, a Bills game. I've taken my kids the last couple of years to at least one game, and they have a great time. I mean, it's just it's the most fun I think I've, our families had together, uh, bar any vacation anywhere. So uh, we'll go back again this year, and I usually make uh, a couple games besides that one. So now, one last question. I'll kick it back to Brandon because I'm just. I mean, this is this is this is fun. Uh, when you tell people that you know, you played in the NFL and you you play for three different teams, would you do you consider yourself a Buffalo Bill at heart, Indianapolis Colt, or Pittsburgh Steeler? You know, it's, it, I was very lucky to play for three great owners. I mean, Mr. Wilson's awesome. And Jimmy Ursay at that time was the general manager and he's not really that much older than me, but Jimmy was great to me. And, and then the Rooney family, it doesn't get any better, especially Dan Rooney. Uh, but I, to me, I identify as a Buffalo Bill. I lived there seven years, year round. The wife went to law school there. She worked for the U.S. Attorney's Office. I mean, I couldn't get arrested. It was awesome. (laughs) Uh, Indianapolis, even though I did radio for a long time, uh, it, it's it's just not the same because Peyton Manning and that team, and as good as those guys were, they forgot all about you know the Jim Harbaugh team that almost got there in the Hail Mary pass or whatever. I don't they, forget. I, I remember that. Not that much. Yeah. Uh, and Pittsburgh, I'm not even on the totem pole. So I mean, I I identify as a Buffalo Bill because when I go up there, it's the only town I'm really a celebrity in. Um, and, it, and it's fun because people make all over my kids, you know. Oh my God, t- they take pictures with my daughters. I'm like, go ahead. Uh, it's just, it's just a fun. And it's small town, so I, I know most of the people anyway. And the ones I don't know, that they, they still, they still treat us like gods. It's pretty fun. Well, you come up to the gold room some Saturday when we're up there, uh, there on the balcony and stuff. I'm sure you get to church and we'll fanboy over you. We'll take pictures with you. We'll you <laughs> all right, is that cool? Because I'm dead serious. <laughs> Oh, that'll, that'll work. Give me, t- give me time to handicap first though. I like to do my own handicapping. I'm one guy. I don't like to take advice from other people. Me too. I'll take advice like this horse is doing well. It's training well, or that breeze is a lot better than you think, but I can't just go up to somebody and be like, all right, who do you like and, and bet off of them? I got to do my own homework for handicapping and betting horses. I just don't get, I'll, I'll get anybody beat if <laughs> I and take it, take advice from others. I'm, I'm with you there, man. I feel the same way. All right, Brandon. So, Will, when you're when you're betting, do you like to bet most of the track, or do you use the apps on your phone, or how do you do it? Uh, now I'm pretty much the app guy on Twin Spires. Um, I used to love having a paper ticket, but with COVID and everything else lately, um, well, I'm at Churchill. I'll do both. But yeah. I was just in Las Vegas and everything I bet there, even though they were taking bets at Churchill or Vegas, they're they're back doing that now. I just huh. use my phone. I use my phone to do it. Yeah. The uh what what other tracks that, that you have haven't been to that you would like to go to? Like have you been out to West Coast, Santa Anita, Del Mar, Golden Gate? Santa Anita and Del Mar. I've been to I want to go to Oakland. It's one oh, of the yeah. two. I've been to Monmouth, I've been to Saratoga, I've been to Belmont. Jeez. I've never been to Aqueduct, but I don't really care to go to Aqueduct. 
Uh, <laughs> I think Oklahoma would be a great guys trip or, or, or a trip with the wives, either one of them, but I've just never done it. Um, right. father-in-law was a bookie and, and he used to work, he used to go to Oklahoma to book, um, when I was younger, but I never made the trip with him. And, and that, I guess that's probably the one that I haven't been to. I, I'm gonna, I miss Arlington. Arlington was awesome. Right. Beautiful track. Um, I probably like Delmont the best. I'm a much better handicapper and better when the track is not speed favoring. And a lot of times Belmont is not speed favoring. Uh, if, if a track is, you know, you make the lead, get an easy lead, and you just romp home, I'm probably not going to win a lot. But if it's fair to, to – and if it's favoring closers, I like that. And it seems like Belmont gets a real strong headwind on the backside a lot to where it does – it will favor closers or at least be fair. Belmont is an amazing track. I mean, we're heading up there for Belmont this year. But when you get there, it's like a huge airplane hangar outside in the bleachers. And to see the turns – the horses look so much farther away. It's amazing how far they are. Yeah, the size of it. Well, you can pretty much take church announce and just place it inside. Right. Uh, it is pretty. And that's, I know for, for Breeders' Cups, I love when it's at, at Belmont. I think the European horses like it as well. They like the weather. Uh, to me, it should bounce around between Belmont and, and church announce a lot more than it does. Speaking of Breeders' Cup, are you heading to Keeneland this year? Uh, for sure. I still have a Keeneland vest where, uh, I've had for 25 years where people think I worked there. So if I, <laughs> so if I buy Burgoo, I get 20% off and I can go anywhere I want with that vest on. Cause again, they think I'm, I'm an employee. So yeah, oh, that's uh, awesome. I'm looking forward to it. And then, I mean, that vest, I had it when I bought a horse named Flying Lauren named after my second daughter who, uh, was a uh, head away from being a stakes winner. Um, so God, that was back in. 98, 97. I've had it for a long time. Wow. Well, guys, does anyone else have any other questions for Will? CC? Yeah, I've got one more. Back in the early 2000s, you operated the Louisville Fire Arena Football League team. Well, oh, yeah. Talk about uh, your experiences there because that, uh, that was kind of a big deal back in the day. That was fun. Yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of what it could have should have. When we took over the team – we were under the impression that uh, the downtown arena was coming a lot sooner than it actually did. So we were thinking, all right, we'll operate in Freedom Hall for a couple of years, and then we'll move to a new arena where people in a new arena are going to flock and see anything because it's brand new. And that didn't really happen. Uh, and then 08 and 09 hit, and, and uh, everything stopped. I mean, all, all our sponsorship literally dried up to zero. Um should have known because it was before the market even crashed. I mean, everybody told us, I'm sorry, we're cutting back. Um, hopefully a similar thing's not happening now with right. the economy. But, uh, for a couple of years, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it's a trivia question. Jeff Brown's first head coaching job was in the Arena Football League. I knew that. That's right. And, uh, they had the whole Brom squad helping. It was, uh, it was pretty awesome. And he, he was, uh, Jeff's always been a very, uh, serious guy. I mean, even though it was arena football, you would have thought he was coaching the Packers. I mean, he was out of the box. Um, he was, uh, he's been the guy that you see. He's very intense and serious and, and really good because of it. But it, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it gave a lot of kids that, you know, were not good enough to play in the NFL a chance to keep their, their dreams alive or just play a game that they played forever and they weren't done. You know, they won a little more. Okay. Tell the story about, uh, the, the time that you were the, 
you and Bob Valvano were the center and the kicker. That's the greatest. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Talk about a promotion that would have made a really bad movie. Um, yeah. Uh, we dressed out one game and I was, I ended up being a long snapper, which I hadn't long snapped since, uh, since high school. In high school, I was a backup long snapper. Didn't do it for real since grade school. So yeah, we dressed out one game, went out there and, and did it and kicked an extra point. So, uh, yeah, that was kind of funny. And thank God nobody really hit me because the, I'm sure I would have tore something. <laughs> hey, one bit of trivia real quick about I'll tie this into a horse racing thing. Because uh, I went to a couple of those games, Arena League football there at uh, at Freedom Hall. And there was a while you guys had a female team play before the fire, right? Yes. And now, and who who was the running back for that female football team? None other than, I think she was running back, Tammy Fox, right? Who's the wife of Dale Romans, correct? Yeah, for the Kentucky squad. And then What? And then yeah. uh, the um, they played a team from Birmingham, and Birmingham had a girl who was just head and shoulders better than everybody on the field, and it was kind of dangerous because she just ran through people, whether she was on offense or defense. But yeah, there's uh, there's still women's leagues out there, and sometimes you'll see them practicing in the Seneca Park or or other places because uh, you know they kind of get into the game. They're like, why not? Let's play a little bit. But yeah, we would do those at halftime, and that was always a a big draw and and, uh, and very enjoyable. I mean, heck, yeah, I mean, you know, women are a lot meaner than men, and they get after. <laughs> I mean, they do. You know, men are mean when they know they're going to win. When they, right. <laughs> if you're in a football game and you're not sure, they're not so tough anymore. Uh, women just get after; they don't care. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I saw yeah. some pretty good hits there, man. Everybody else got to go to the bathroom. I was like, I'm watching this game. <laughs> uh, it really was. It was actually really entertaining. Sometimes it was better than the game itself. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. But All right, Brandon. Now, Will, I, I'd be amiss to not include this. This is very important. So you got to get it right one time. Do you have someone in your house that's running for district court judge, and who is she? Oh, Oh, that would be the wife. We're running for district court spot number 15 and, and just coming off the primary like, uh, young Sarah Clay, she did really well. She actually got more votes in the primary than the, than the two competitors combined. So we're looking forward to, uh, the November election and, and see on the deal. But no, wife and, uh, she has a long history as an attorney and something she's always wanted to do and the, and the timing's good for her to do it now and she's, She's getting after it. She's working it hard. I didn't know she transitioned from Buffalo working there in New York and then had to pass the bar here in Kentucky, too. So she must really like you. <laughs> yeah. When, when I went to uh, – when I signed my contract with the, with the Colts, it was actually – I signed the contract, deposited the signing bonus, and then went to the hospital to have the wife induced to have our first child. So she oh took a little gosh. bit of time off at that time. And then once the youngest was firmly in school, she decided, all right, I'm going to take the bar again. Yeah, she, I don't think she realized that reciprocity <laughs> or whatever wasn't going to take place and she was going to have to take that bar again. But uh, but she crushed the New York one on the first try, and then she, she got past the Kentucky one after about a 10-year delay. That's awesome. Yeah, if, if I ever told Sarah we're moving, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen because she doesn't want to go back and pass the bar. So, no, uh, it, it, it is brutal. Well, the Auxiliary Gate thanks you, and Jude Wolford, the Auxiliary Gate, is backing you uh, in your upcoming campaign in November 3rd on 
the district court division 15 and, uh, Sarah Clay is, uh, circuit court division nine. Totally nice. opposite. Great friends. And, uh, we're, we've had a great time talking to you tonight and we definitely want to see you at the track soon. I do want to sequel, uh, sit, at least single one of your favorite horses. If you can tell us in the upcoming meets, uh, especially <laughs> Breeders Cup, I want to find that one, uh, using the rag sheets on turf. Right. Uh, Cause we'll be there. All of us will be there. And, uh, we've had a pleasure tonight and we just want to thank you very much. Amen. No problem, man. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Okay. That was Will Wolford, a Louisville, Kentucky legend. That was a great interview, guys. Yeah. Great yeah. job, Brandon. Uh, uh, I could have listened to him all day. I want, I love hearing it. I love hearing horse racing stories, but man, I love hearing NFL stories. I'd say he's got hours and hours of them, but yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. So, uh, Alan, tell us about your week. You had a, you had a, you went on a journey yesterday, last night, right? Yeah, I'm just not coming over, getting over it, cause I'm an old man. I'm not as young as I used to be, but, uh, we uh, went up to, uh, nice enough to go up to the Reds game yesterday with, uh, the good folks, the Twin Spires folks, uh, Joe Christofek, great guy. And his brother, uh, Dan, another great guy up there, this, uh, James Scully, Jason Bean was up there. We had a lot of fun. Uh, as I mentioned, I was as young as I used to be. Uh, I got in late. I didn't have to work day, fortunately. I'm just now coming back around, but that was a lot of fun. I'd be happy to do it again. Uh, they're a lot of fun. And I need to come in and hang out, talk to Will Wolford. I mean, what more can you ask for, right? Yeah, it's awesome. Been a great week. Great week for sure. Uh, five day week at Churchill Downs. Starting tomorrow and goes through Monday. Of course, Monday's Memorial Day. It, honestly, this is not my best time of the year or best time of the Churchill Downs meet. I don't have any good memories of <laughs> hitting some big wagers. And, you know, the, the racing's kind of like they're having a, they have a mile and a half turf stake, overnight stake for Phillies and Mares on Saturday. That's the Kirtana. And then Monday is the winning color stakes for the three year old, or excuse me, the uh, Philly Mare Sprinters, six furlongs. But the following weekend is one to mark on the calendar. Uh, big, big, big stakes races. The uh, you've got the Audubon, a mile and eighth on turf, three year olds, the Regret for three year old fillies, the Aristides, Brandon's favorite race, <laughs> six furlong sprint, the Shawnee for the older fillies and mares, the Arlington Stakes. So they moved that from Arlington Park to here. Uh, grade three, mile and 16th on the turf. And of course, the Blaine. All these prep races for the big uh, Stephen Foster Saturday later in the meet. All these races are $200,000. So, this, you know, next Saturday, June 4th is going to be a big day. And then, of course, so the following weekend is Belmont Stakes Day. That's going to be a great, uh, great weekend of racing. So, you know, get through Memorial Day weekend and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's hardcore from here to the end of the meet. Then we got Ellis Park. <laughs> Uh, I hope that meet goes well, but I actually think I actually I looked at Saturday's card briefly. I think this Saturday's card is pretty good, uh, I, better than I than I anticipated. I think it's got some possibilities, but yeah, the following weekend that's always a always a good card. So I'll be looking forward to that. Uh, but I'm, I'm I kind of like the Saturday card this weekend. Yeah, when they when they bring back that Arlington meet, well, you know that used to be at Arlington at Churchill. I hope that turf is holding up. I hope the rails down, and let's hope for the best. I mean. Because I, I want to see some real turf races. I want to see six, seven turf races in a row. Because <laughs> to me, those are the most fun. 
and I don't want to see these jockeys. You know, hopefully that turf is going to be well grown in by that time. And, uh, you know, you're, you're hearing a little bit about some of these jocks and saying the turf is loose near the rail. And let's hope that this Bermuda really, really takes form here in the next couple of weeks. We need some heat. You're alluding to the uh, Darlington Million will be run at Churchill in August, like the second yeah. end of August. Uh, mm-hmm. The Beverly D and uh, another, uh, maybe the Secretariat. So that, that's going to be one day of racing. Ellis is, is giving up there that, that Saturday for Churchill. So, uh, last uh, last item of business. I think my memory's not as good as it was, but I think right about now is our Three is it? We're starting our third year. Of the I think you're right. Yeah, we started 2020, so this is this is really our second anniversary. But we're we're going into season three as we uh, and I know this because uh, we we kept the races that I would just alluded to the uh, the 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 big car to race and the blame and 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 what the Shawnee and and those type of races. So that's I think that may have been our first or second pod. I think well, you're right. I think it was late May, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, 106 episodes left, met a lot of great people, and uh, yeah, I believe you are on point there. That is amazing, isn't it? And again, our listenership, we are constantly surprised at our listenership, so uh, yeah, it's been fun. We'll keep doing it, right? We're going to get back to the Matt Wynn and celebrate. There you go. Sounds great. All right. We'll call it a wrap on behalf of Alan Schneider. Brandon Jaggers, Will Wolford, our guest this evening, and thousands and thousands of others. This is CC Broadus signing off and reminding you that gambling money ain't got no home.